Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Founder Stories. I'm your host, Ephraim Yarmak. I'm super excited to bring to you today Amichai Niederman, co-founder and CEO of NIM. NIM has raised close to $50 million from Tiger Global Edition Capital, Lightspeed GV, and multiple others. In our conversation today, we go over Amichai's early days, how he got into entrepreneurship, and what it really takes to build a startup as a first-time founder. Now, if you listen to any of our previous episodes, you know how our conversations work. It's a soul-to-soul experience. These conversations are raw, emotional, vulnerable. We go into depth about our journeys. Our journeys about the ups and downs of life and what drives us and how we can make a bigger impact. I'm Michai. Thank you for this incredible conversation, your honesty, vulnerability, and the willingness to share. I know the impact this conversation has had on my life, and I know the impact it's going to make on others too. So when you, the listener, listen to it once, twice, or three times, you're going to learn so many incredible things that you'll be able to implement into your life today. So have a great listen, and please share with your friends who you think can benefit too. Now, this is important to listen closely. In order to reach more people and inspire others, please subscribe and leave a review. This recording is brought to you by the Goodness and Kindness Foundation. If you're walking down the street, smile to a stranger, do a good deed for someone else, and let's all strive to make impact in this world in order to make it a better dwelling place for everyone. Hey, everyone. I'm super, super, super excited today to have with us a very, very special guest. Today, we have the absolute honor to host the founder of a phenomenal, phenomenal company called NIM. Now, we're going to get into NIM. We're going to get into what it does and how it's changing the world of medical. But before we talk about NIM, we also have the opportunity to host our dear friend and an incredible, incredible person besides being an amazing founder, Amicha. And we're here today to learn how Amicha got to where he is and the lessons you learned along the way, not just become of a founder, but also of the person who he is, the father, the husband, the friend, and everything else about him. So Amichai, thank you so, so much for joining us today. No, thank you, Frank, for having me. It's an absolute, absolute pleasure to have. So Amichai, today's conversation, like all our conversations that we have of all incredible founders, is what we call a soul-to-soul conversation, where we go deep, we go into what moves you, what drives us, in order that we can impact our own lives, that we can become better people, on a daily basis. But let's get into it. I mean, first time founder, tell me about the rough times of what it was like you know, starting a company and especially that first year of building it up when you absolutely knew nothing about startup life, nothing about running a company, about managing, about raising money, everything for me. What was like all the emotions and the difficult times like that first year? Yeah, I think it was even worse. I didn't even know a lot about the field that we got into because uh, like you said, we're in the medical space or healthcare IT space, uh, even to be more precise. And I had nothing about this background. I, I got into this because my wife, she's a surgeon and just a little bit observing her work. I got interested in doing something in this field, but I'm my background is uh, is in cybersecurity originally. Before starting a company, I spent about 10 years in the Israel Defense Force in the army. So we have mandatory service. So I stayed there for almost 10 years. I was an officer and nothing that I've done, well, uh, probably a lot, sorry, prepared me to be, to start a startup, but now it actually prepares you to really know what, what to anticipate because you know we were we came up with an idea and as a, as a technologist we thought well the best thing to do is like let's write code me and my co-founder adam like we both knew each other from the army we were both uh, either software developers or researchers starting instincts so that's like hey let's build the product that we're gonna sell eventually um and we spent a whole lot of time doing this until some investor that heard about us told me listen just do a deck and go out and raise money and hire the people that you need to build this thing there is no way the two of you will be able to build something that big that can actually work. So you're just wasting your time. So we actually did this and we had zero idea on how to go and raise money. Uh, we're lucky enough that the problem we're going after was just, just really big. And the approach that we took 
uh, made a lot of sense to a lot of people, especially smart people and very friendly investors that just kept connecting us to more investors who gave us their feedback. And from meeting to meeting, we're just learning more and more and more. And over a course of about a week and a half or two weeks, we end up raising our pre-seed money. And our biggest problem, like, how do we even, how do you even open a bank account? Because before this, my dad opened my bank account when I was 12 for me. And that's the first time as an adult I have, I left the army. Um, I need to open a new bank account. How do you do this? How do you find an office? Like stuff that you never, like we never knew we even have to, 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 to handle this. And, and it happened so quickly. We didn't have even the time to really digest and think through some of those problems. So we just had to solve them on the fly. And they, maybe that's a really good thing that you learned in the Israeli army, like solve problems like on the fly. Like just winging it. It's a, it's a very, it's a professional army. It's also a very amateur army in a lot of things. Uh, ways. So you just learn how to, and you get used to it. Like, all right, you're smart. You, we, we hire, we draft smart people. So whatever problem that gets thrown at us, we can solve it. It's like, we have no other option. So you just solve it and it's sink or swim. So, and you, you know, um, that, that well, we're swimming as a country. So obviously it's working for like 70 years now, but um, that, that's kind of what it prepares you to. So every time we found like, all right, we solved all the problems, like we know what to do now. It just creates a new problem. Like, all right, we know how to sell our product. We think we figured this out to a certain scale. Well, clients are coming in like, well, now we have to deliver. We need to build infrastructure for this. We have this, we need to have a support. And so the first year was a lot of blocking, tackling almost on a daily, not even daily basis, like an hourly basis. Like how do we solve all those problems that we weren't really prepared to while still learning the market that uh, we're selling into. And we're very lucky. I think for sure, we're very lucky that we, we found our first client very, very, very quickly. Just two months in, I met some CEO of, uh, of a company and up being our client in a conference. And I don't know why, but I took the, the overly candid approach with him telling him exactly where we are in the life cycle of the company, not trying to oversell him on anything, not window dress, telling him we're still figuring out what we're doing. And he told me, well, I want to be, I really appreciate the fact that you, you aren't bullshitting me um, and I want to be your partner. And we even up being even personal friends uh, now. And so we got our first client very quickly. We got access to somebody who knew that, they had, that he has to teach us. But he took that risk knowing that, well, if that thing is actually going to work, it's worth so much to him. So he was willing and actually happy to make this kind of investment. Wow. You mentioned so many in so many interesting different things. But the first thing I want to get into, I mean, we dive into a bunch of stuff that you mentioned, is the one of the first things you mentioned. You said the idea from the company essentially came from your wife, who is a surgeon. Right. So why do you, what, what do you mean that the idea from the company came from your wife and that started that company? So it's not, it's not actually it didn't come from her because um, luckily uh, we don't have that problem here in Israel. The same problem we're solving doesn't exist in Israel. Um, what did happen is just by seeing her work, it's not like how much repetitive manual work you have that in healthcare. Stuff that today I kind of take for granted after being in the army, if you can automate something, you automate it. You don't do something. If it's a repeated job, you write code to solve it. That's what I've been used to, been told to, ordered to for the last 10 years for starting the company. Don't be stupid. It's just do it smart. Um, and just by seeing her doing this manual work made me think like there is a big potential around healthcare. Like those problems could be solved with the approach that I'm used to. Um, so that's how I got into it. Then there was the whole process of searching for a problem because I knew very early on that you know, there's tons of potential in healthcare, but if we'll go into 
the clinical world, now we'll have to go through FDA approvals. We'll have to be able to find buyers and show them that there is ROI using our product. And something could take years with some of those organizations. Like healthcare doesn't move very quickly. And I didn't want to go into a, a path of now spending six years just to get my first client and show that client that's actually working and work there a while. And just through talking to people, interviewing people, reading about the industry, uh, that's how we stumble upon the problem that we're solving today. That's almost, I won't say entirely just for the US healthcare market, but this is our, this maybe 90% of the problem in the world is in the US healthcare market there. It's how providers and or hospitals, like I can sometimes say hospitals just because it's easier to say, get reimbursed or paid by the insurance companies for procedures and that they rendered uh, on, on their patients, on their clients. And that's kind of a problem that's um, almost solely in the U.S. healthcare market. Like the re in Israel, it's a single payer system. Nobody have any incentive to fraud the system, ask for more money because it's all coming from the same pocket. You're being paid by the hour. You're, you're going to say overcode something. You're going to ask for more money. You as the physician personally, you're not going to make, you're not going to get anything um, more. I, I got to ask you, the, the healthcare industry in general, obviously depending upon which sector within the healthcare industry, a lot of times is very slow moving towards innovation on certain aspects, especially specifically in your sector, which is insurance and the billing process of um, in other aspects, for example, in actual technology being used, for example, on surgery or doctors, a lot of innovation things coming up constantly. But in your sector where you find yourself is very slow adapt. And a lot of to new innovation, people are not open to, but especially people that are new to the industry. You know, most times an insider that's going to come in and, you know, that's been in the industry for such a long time and is very frustrated. What gave you even the, the, the thought process thinking that you could come to such a like old style type of industry and thinking you can make change? I mean, you knew nothing about the whole entire insurance and building and every, nothing over there. Well, sometimes ignorance is a bliss. Um, and that definitely contributed here uh, making the decision. But also, um, you know, but there is a will, there is a way. And especially when you're facing such a huge problem, like the problem that we're tackling of what's called medical coding you see that it's something that technology has to solve. It's the, the, the approach to just throwing more bodies at the problem. It's not scalable. It's not sustainable. You're going to run out of people eventually, and that's basically what's happening. Um, and when you get, you get to a certain point where you have so many people working on a problem, it's becoming a management, AR, HR nightmare. How do you train all those people? How do you make sure that they're all up to date? Now, when it's domestic coding, you have the coders, just in the US, it's one thing. But now when they're spread across the world, um, the problem becomes like a magnitude order more complicated. Mm -hmm. Like how do you maintain quality across different continents when you didn't certify those people uh, on the other side of the world? How they're working different hours. They're not close to it. It's hard to see what they're doing. And so when you're seeing such a huge problem and the amount of money that's being poured into this, um, it, it's, it's worth taking the risk. Uh, it's slow moving, but you know that at some point and th that point came actually pretty quickly it's even the, the providers the, the hospitals that even as much as they're slow moving they will recognize that they have to add automation they have to add ai to to their set of solutions because otherwise they're not going to grow their their costs going to keep rising they're going to get paid less going to get paid slower going to get audited more frequently. So it's either adopting technology or not. So it was just a question like how quickly, quickly will it happen? And actually when we're looking at the company, there was one catalyst that helped this uh, move faster is that they moved from a system 
a schema called ICD-9, which is a system that they use. It had about 16,000 codes. And I guess that we didn't even talk about what exactly we're doing, but today for a health, like for a healthcare provider to get reimbursed by insurance company, you have to send a list of, for, the insurance company wonder what they're paying for. So you have to send them a list of codes where there is a, there's alpha medical codes where there's a price tag for every, there's a code for every diagnosis and every procedure. And there's also a price code, like a, price tag, sorry, associated with each of those uh, codes. And so that's the only way to get paid today. Um, and they moved from a system, just before we started a company, from a system called ICD-9 um, that had about 16,000 code, which is pretty simple to for somebody to memorize, like even a decent chunk of it. The level of specific, specificity that you have to get into is not as complicated. If somebody fractured an arm, or you have to know that they fractured their right arm or left arm. Pretty easy. But then they moved to a system called ICD-10 that has more than 300,000 codes. Now you have to know if this bone is fractured or this bone is fractured, if it's an open fracture, complex fracture. So it became so much more complicated. And we knew it was already there. They're getting to the point where they need a lot more coders to just keep their head above the water. Um, and now the, it became so much hard to code. So it's either going to adapt, adapt technology or the whole thing going to fail. And from what we're seeing today, they are much more open to using some something like our solution um, than ever before. Wow. I mean, it's just like you see like the testament of the number of customers you have, um, the investors trusting you and the amount of how, how your company's grown so quickly. And we'll get into all that. But before we, we get into it, you know, we, 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 every story has a backstory. And before NIM, before you got married, and before the army service, and before everything else, you know, there was a little Amichai that grew up in a beautiful home. There was, there was, they went through the whole entire thing, periods of college, of adolescence, and the teenage years, and, you know, it, it being a child and a baby. You know, where are you from, and what was your upbringing like? Well, I'm from Israel. Uh, was born in Tel Aviv. Actually, from my uh, dad's side of the family, I'm the first one to be to actually been born outside of a small, I don't want, today it's a city, but a small maybe village right. is the best description called Zichon Yaakov. So my family moved here, it came to Israel in 1882, um, what's called uh, wow. the first wave of immigration. Um, they were part of the first 12, I think 12 families that moved here. It's, it's like similar to the Mayflower um, in a way, or actually this is the best equivalent that they can come up with. So we moved here in 1882, um, except for a very short stint that we had in Brooklyn. I think mm -hmm. we had a beer brewery there. We moved back to Israel uh, pretty quickly, uh, mostly because of healthcare problem. Um, we didn't like uh, the Nidermans didn't like the the healthcare situation in the 1890s in Brooklyn. Uh, so we moved back to Israel um, and stayed in Zichon ever since until. Um, my dad was born in Zichon, I was born in Tel Aviv, um, born and raised here, never never moved anywhere else. Wow. The story going around, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, so first of all, before we get into that story, you, from my understanding, started your bachelor's at 14 years old. Yeah. Um, you super I, <laughs> um, when I was 12, I joined the, what's called the Gifted Children Program mm -hmm. in my high school. Um, I actually started in, in one high school and then moved to another. And the, the principal there said, like, she told my mother, she thinks it's going to be a better idea if I'll move to a, a different high school where they have a Gifted Children Program. Made a ton of friends 
Um, I mean, my best friends are still from from that class, the closest friends that I have, and kind of the you know, nerdy peer pressure that you, you get there when you're 14, you're you're, you're past your bar mitzvah now, you're 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 an adult, is like let's go to university. So I started started studying uh, math and computer science uh, there when I was 14. Um, so you said that I went to college. So I think I completely missed out on all the college experience that some people talk about. Um, it's very different when you're 14 and doing this, and then when you're 18, um, you just joined the army. Just out of curiosity, if you look back at it, back at it now, from like you know your standpoint, we are now in life, your age, and everything like that. Is that like an unapplied pressure to a 14 year old going through those advanced types of courses? Or is that like as a plus going through those types of courses at that age? I think it's a plus. And actually today, you know, you see more and more people doing this. Different people are coming with more advanced degrees. Like one of the things I enjoy most about my army service is that I got to serve with some of the smartest people in the world, probably. And then you see people coming with master's degrees, uh, PhDs, sometimes even the age of 19. Um, so like you guys meet some and work with some of the smartest people in the world. And it's so fun because you get to work on the most complex problems out there with some of the smartest people. So every day is like a it's new challenge that just gets you excited. Um, but I don't think it's no, nobody will be pressured to do this if they don't want to do it. Right. And I don't know a lot of people that actually regret doing this. Right. Now that's amazing. So you know, there's a story going around that decided one night, I don't know what you were thinking, to go on some type of crazy thing and you hacked into the public Wi-Fi of Tel Aviv. You took down the phone. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it makes it better or worse, but I was actually, I was, uh, I think it was, I was um, on my way back home um, and I was stopping in the middle of like of the road, my car on a red light. And I saw my, my phone got connected to a Wi-Fi in the middle of nowhere. Like, how could that be? Maybe I picked up from one of the other houses. I felt they were pretty far away. Just looked at the name of the Wi-Fi inside. It was called uh, Free TLV. It's like, oh, awesome. Well, we have Wi-Fi in the city right now. And like one thing led to another. I was bored that same night. And yeah, I ended up hacking that uh, Wi-Fi network. I didn't notify them, notify the company to build some of the, the, the manufacturer the devices that they use because that's actually what I hacked, the devices themselves. Um, even more specifically, the load balancer that they're using for the entire network. Uh, this is where I found the vulnerability. But um, was kind of a one-night thing that I did. Um, it was pretty fun. I mean, it's pretty like, you know, being able to log into, I mean, hacking essentially to like a public Wi-Fi, especially a whole entire city. I mean, the amount of information, things like that, you know, it makes you think like in general about like public Wi-Fi networks anywhere in the world. Yeah. Like, do you still hack into public Wi-Fi networks? You're flying to the airport because like, hey, for fun, let me go ahead and try this out. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm a CEO of a company. I think uh, I live it. I, I don't, I don't want to say I completely left the cyber world behind me. I still have friends doing this. I still go to some of the the conferences but i'm not actively doing anything today right you know it's an interesting thing interesting thing is that even if you look at the other friends from the army or any other types of companies for example coming out of israel a lot of time most companies that focus cybersecurity, cybersecurity, something related to cloud anything around that arena and even now you started to have a lot of like you know b2b produ uh, products you know for example companies like gong and spike and multiple different types of others companies like yourself in the medical very is rare. I mean, you have now recently, I started seeing a few more started coming out, but it's not, it's not a, a, a thing that most people are, are going into or doing. Well, you're right. Like we, this is all my friends, what I did in the army, you do cyber security, maybe the opposite of security in that case. But uh, you come with like, 
you're being trained for several years doing something very specific. This is what you're good at. Uh, this is what you're passionate about. It's just that's what you're doing. That's what you do with your friends. That's what you're talking about. Your whole life revolves around this. Um, I was actually lucky enough in the army that almost every couple of years, um, I got a switch job. So I did all sorts of things, not just cybersecurity. I'm really thankful for this because I got to see so many different things and I enjoyed it so much. For me, the, doing the jump, like, all right, I think I'm I'm doing cyber. I'm becoming good at this. I'm getting to know the people. I'm building my reputation. I did participate in a lot of conferences around the world, um, but had an opportunity to do something different um and wasn't afraid of doing it like all right so it's it it's it's not it's not my um i'm sure i said not safe space but not the um this is not where i feel convenient but you know i have to learn and hopefully i'll catch up quickly enough yeah you know it seems like you're catching up over there and you know you've been able to like you know thank god raise a ton of money um walk me through some of like you know you raised a nice amount of money in 2020 then you obviously raise a nice beautiful round um, a, few, a month around a month back, walk me through your, your your fundraising process of what you did and how you able to do that so you do it and some of the tips you have for other entrepreneurs too. I mean, the way we started is um, not knowing a lot about VCs. I was almost just seeing who was uh, we're looking for a few things like people we can work with that we don't think that there'll be a problem when we're moving forward. Like people will be asking for ridiculous terms that only see what well, the investor they need to see themselves maybe first, but you know. We want people that are also mensch. They won't say, you know what? It's not my way through the company. Um, I'm not voting on this matter or I want it to be done this way and I'm going to you know, not invest. I'm going to tell other people that I want it to be in a different way. So we're looking for people who are friendly initially. And also one thing that we stand, you actually see this with the more like, top tier VCs that we're lucky to invest in the company is the type of questions that they're asking. They're actually asking like the hard questions. Like they're really doing their due diligence and saying, well, we want to understand the market better. Uh, we want to talk with people. We want to hear what your clients are saying. We want to hear what your potential clients are, are saying. Um, we want to connect you. Well, you're selling to hospital CFOs. We want you to connect to two or three CFOs that we're friendly with. We want to hear what, what they have to say. And first of all, they're, they were challenging us, which was uh, a great thing. Because like I said, we didn't know a whole lot when we started. So just by hearing the stuff that they're asking um, made us better. And the second thing is they introduce us to people that to our clients, essentially, and sometimes just save us a whole lot of time and money to get to them. Like, here you are trying to raise money and some VC kind of forces you in order for them to invest in the company to meet with your client, with somebody you want to sell to that. In any other way, I'll have to send them emails, cold call, call them, find them in a conference, uh, get them to my booth in all kind of ways, hire a sales rep that will get to them. But no, here they got asked like, hey, can you talk with this person for an hour? want to get your opinion. Um, and they'll go on a call for an hour. And first of all, to be honest with you, and more than once we actually heard him saying, yeah, we're interested in this. We want this. So then you just mentioned like your, your, the sales process, what happens when it comes, to an it comes to an introduction of a VC, which is amazing. And that's what a VC partner statue should be. It should be like a partner. But a company like yourself, and I'm sure plenty of people could benefit from listening, um, obviously sure where you feel comfortable, is your sales process because you're selling, essentially you're selling also to, to bigger, bigger, major hospitals. Right. And major hospitals, I'm sure there's a ton of bureaucracy, even forgetting about all the HIPAA laws in the U.S. and all the security issues and everything around there. But what is a sales process like by, by your thing? No, those are very long sales processes. 
And the thing you have to understand very quickly and realize that it's not just the person that you're selling into. They usually they'll, they'll have people that's going to report to that person and they'll be part of decision making and they're going to be the one using this and they're going to be the one doing the evaluation during the pilot. Um, so they're actually going to be some of the people that are going to uh, make the final decision and nobody works in a vacuum, especially in healthcare IT. You need to get the IT involved. You need to get the finances, procurement, and all those people, they are part of this. And it's almost essential that you'll get to those people as early as possible in the process. So they will know what you're working on, what's your timeline, that they will have the buy-in saying like, oh, so the CFO is really interested in that. We want to know what that is. Maybe we can find somebody else. Like, oh, no, you're the only one. Perfect. Uh, well, but it's really complicated to integrate. So it's really easy. You just you need to keep them in the loop. So when you're doing those type of sales, especially the health system, you have to be more strategic. Um, it's not just hunting down your client and make, making them sign a contract. Is You have to make sure that all the parties involved will be aligned. They'll be able to do this. Um, and they're all going to say amen at the same time on that deal. So it's uh, really important that you know to be very strategic. And that's something that we did with, with our um, with our hiring, the type of people that we hired for our sales team were either ex-consultants, people that worked and sold solutions and products like similar to us, to those type of organizations and got to work with the IT before, with the financial decision makers, sometimes with the clinical decision makers, but we're able to do a sale that involves more than one person and really orchestrate this whole thing. Being this whole remote culture right now, because I'm sure before COVID, you probably took all these meetings in person. There was no other way about it. Uh, maybe a first call, like especially this type of ticket item. Has your industry specific has it changed with COVID? Has it been easier to sell remotely? Is it going? You, you are you or you prefer going back or in person? I mean, obviously in person creates a better experience, but is it going back to in person and things are there? Yeah, it's actually been. I think people are very adaptive to to virtual. Like we're doing all of our calls now uh, virtually. I can count maybe one hand the amount of in-person meetings that we've we've done. Actually, we're doing them more with clients that we're either signed with or like really close to the, we already got their red lines, accepted some of it or all of it. And we just want to be there in person to shake on it. Right. But um, almost everything is done virtually now. Um, and it's actually pretty good. I do miss going to some of the, the, the in-person conferences and seeing the people. Um, but um, from a business perspective, you can definitely do the entire sale virtually. And you see that the teams that the clients even build are spread across the country now because they can do it. You don't need to have one of the VPs actually located in the hospital. Especially if they're not clinical. Why would you want somebody that can uh, increase the risk of contracting COVID? If that person can work from home. So yeah, people spread across the country and they're already working virtual. So so tell me as as a first time founder, you know, like what were some of like what's a non-obvious like either product product tip or some type of habit as a first time founder that you you picked up and you learned that you think someone else should learn too? I think I mean hiring is key. Like very quickly you 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 learn that you're not good at everything. Um some things you're actually bad at. Um, and there's stuff that passion, unfortunately, just can't replace. Like you can work 24-7, but if you make the right hire and you hire somebody who's been doing it for 15 years now and they're good at this, they can do a much better job than you. Not can ever, can, but they just have the experience and they bring this experience and it can save you so much time 
and money and time is probably the most important thing uh, even more than money so it can save you so much time and mistakes along the way just hiring right and hiring the, the right people and hiring for experience is super important yep you have a process for hiring to make sure you get that right experience and right culture at. we do uh, we do and it's kind of possible we, we have our entire executive team involved in our hr and we're working with recruiters we really like the type of like builders people that been and seen startups in our stage either before or a little bit later in in life but seen that how a startup can actually grow um and they've seen all the pitfalls and they help you avoid this right and it goes back to what you're saying before having the you know the most incredible investors especially when you just started raising for your company when you knew nothing and you met all these people and everyone giving you advice and tips and everything so having those types of people surround you like mentors advisors is, is so crucial for the success of a startup and your own personal success too it's, it's just amazing to have that yeah then how did you you know this whole how did you change and grow as an individual person on this whole entire journey so far you know it's every day you learn something <laughs> you like said like we solve one problem then you have like two more and there are at a different level and scale uh than you'd imagine like you like said, you, you get the sales right now you have to deliver you get delivery right now you have a bunch of clients well and you need customer success some of those stuff especially if you don't come from this background you have to learn that very quickly. You have to learn that you need to find people that been through this process and ask for their opinion. And especially that's why I said, I'm looking for builders and that people in our uh, executive team, some of them have already been through workforce startups in our stage and seen, they can say, well, you know, we're missing this function in the company. And we can think about it as a group. And even say, even they can say, well, I know it's taking some of my responsibility away, but we definitely need somebody can do this like full time. So coming like very quickly, going to find ourselves like six months from now, that this is going to be our biggest problem. Like, let's hire for this yesterday. And, you know, for me personally, like I said, it changes every day, the stuff that I do sometimes. So it's so gradual that maybe I, I don't even notice. Like, I, I've seen that I am I know so many more things now. I got a lot of experience. But, you know, I still feel the same because I'm still kind of the, not blocking tackling. It's, it's a blocking tackling in a different level. Right. But, you know, I saw a problem. Now I have, again, two more so it's it's hard to, to look at it from outside. Only when we're doing fundraising, um, I get to actually, and not only after, you know, I'm talking with the investors for the first time and pitching the company, I can actually get really excited because now I'm talking to the company, but for the next hour, I'm, I'm an outsider. I'm telling about this, how many clients we managed to sign this year. This is how much revenue we brought. This is how many people we hired. This is the technological advancements that we made. This is what our product can do. And I'm talking to this like that is an, kind of an outsider sometimes. Like I can look from the side like this, look at my deck and tell them about this really incredible company that gets me really excited. Um, I know it's, it's my company, but I can take that. I can take a step back and look at it from a different view. And this one really gets me excited in a lot of those uh, fundraising deals. Right. Wow. Wow. It's funny because that goes back to what you mentioned previously, all the way in the beginning. Because like you said, when you're starting a company in the beginning, you're learning to do so many things that you never have, that have nothing related to the actual problem you're trying to solve. So yes, are you passionate about your startup? Are you passionate about like the problem you're trying to solve? Yes. But 90% of the time, 90% of the time of the founder 
is going to be applied to everything else but solving that, right? So like you mentioned in, you know, opening that bank account, finding a place to, to, to lease for your office, hiring equipment, this, that, and obviously until you're big enough to hire people to do it. But even then you're still doing other things, but actually working on the type of thing, you know, it's all the things behind the scenes. So it's funny you mentioned that. And, and the second thing you mentioned, which is, goes back, ties back to the, the first thing is that it, you never know what's going to be thrown at you every single day. And from your experience at the army, where you said that we knew you, that every time they threw a problem at you, you knew you how yeah, you knew you had to find a way how to solve. So it's either you sink or you swim and you figure out how to swim. And essentially like, you know, you start a journey right now, it's learning how to swim every single day. And hopefully you don't need a lifeboat, but you're learning how to swim and, and, and to thrive over there. So like, how do you deal with the challenges that come at you on a daily basis? And, you know, especially the stress levels that come together with it, because I'm assuming there's a ton of stress that, you know, you wake up in the morning and you look at your calendar, you have, let's say, these 10 different things you need to do. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, you have these 20 things you need to do. How do you handle that? So again, it's like, I think, first of all, having a great team, people you can trust, like I have 10 things I, I got to do. Let's see I can how I can load I can just throw some of those people those things of people I can I can trust and you know some of those people they have ten people reporting to them and they can pass some of those uh, tasks to them too right. and so it's it's a group effort a lot of things that if you you have to understand recognize it's a group effort um no pride of ownership like there's also pride of ownership but you have to be able to let go and say well I need my CFO to do this I need my had uh, a product to do this. I need my head of sales to do this. Uh, like a, an investor brings you this amazing lead into a client. Hey, this is one of our LPs. Is your is your dream client, right? I, but I don't have the capacity. Like I, I have to jump on a flight. Have to do something different today. Um, you know, sometimes you have to do stuff that are personal too, and you have to trust. Well, I'm giving my head of sales that lead that got from one of my top investors, and I have to trust that he will do the best with it uh, with this lead and. Now I'm at a point I know that not just he'll do as good as I will, he's actually going to do it better because he's better at doing those kind of things. And that's definitely having to be able to build up that trust and to have the credibility. And also it's also going back to hiring right, but it's so true. Like you mentioned, it. so true. So what advice do you give to new entrepreneurs that come to you and say, hey, I'm Michai, you know, it seems like you have this incredible startup that's successful so far. You know, I'm debating, I want to start a startup. What do you tell them? I always tell them like, if you want to do a startup, like you should do a startup. Um, I'm not sure it's something you can learn from observing other startups or working in a startup because there's there's like no replacement in you say waking my waking my waking up in the morning there's also something waking up in the middle of the night like with cold sweat um and there's no replacement for for this um it's either you own a startup even like being a first employee you're probably in a lot of pressure but i'm not sure it's the same type of pressure you have that as a founder mm -hmm. yeah. so, so if somebody wants to start up the, the best that's it tell them it go for it let's do it there's never a good there's never a good time don't wait for the ideal time there's never a good time and just go for it you know it's like nike says just do it that's it jump into the water and you learn how to swim uh, yeah it's funny like you mentioned because and do it and do it in the the world series or something the world cup like uh yeah. it's uh learn how to swim against some of the best athletes in the world and on your left you have google on the right you have amazon and you know how to do doggy paddle. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned because like you just said, like at the end of the day, like people could learn from each other's experience and they could hear, you know, another founder's story and things like that. But at the end, every single person needs to make those individual mistakes as a founder in order to learn. Even though it's the same mistake that another company made, right? Just trying to copy someone else's playbook 
you know, play by play won't help you. Not necessarily would it work for your story. Like you could learn from them. You can identify, you can take the experience and try to make sure you don't make the same mistake. But as a, as a founder of your own company, you have to go through all those individual experiences and all the individual mistakes too. Everything. And that's just, you know, it's a process of growing up process of building a company and everything around it. I mean, like that. Yeah. So then what do we like to tell, like, you know, a young, I mean, facing the, the, the rule for the first time, you know, you went to college at 14, so obviously not a 14, but after graduating from your army service, you know, you come in, you have this whole entire opportunity in front of you where you could go ahead and start a company or you could go work for another company because I'm sure multiple companies are trying to hire you and to, to recruit you. Or you could just go ahead and become a farmer somewhere because like, why not? It's also a very quiet life that's peaceful and everything. What would you tell yourself if you had the opportunity to, to, to tell yourself a message when you're facing the world? No, definitely do it. Um, I used to call those in the army, those wow moments, the moments that you get really excited about something that you did, something you you. Something that you did actually impacted somebody else. And that, that's the stuff that I love. And you get this all the time in a startup. Like, oh, actually working. Like, damn. Um, so you get this all the time. Something you even solve like a dumb problem. Like, yes, we signed the list for the office in New York. That we're like, we're finding four other companies to get this space. We got this. It gets you excited because you know what that will mean. Like, now I can hire those people. I can bring them. And it's not just the, the act of getting this physical location. It's the fact that you, you can already envision are you going to have a team there? How this team is going to grow and how it's going to affect your business. So definitely to go for it. I love it. I love it. And that's like, you know, it's a message that, <clears throat> that we, we need to hear more and more. Just go ahead and do it. Don't, because there'll always be, there'll always be naysayers. There'll always be negativity. There'll always be, your, you know, stories in your own mind and head. I love that message. I love that message. It's such an incredible thing. And like we was talking about before, you know, what does like the Jewish as an entrepreneur and Jewish identity mean to you? What does it mean, Liot Yehudi? What does it mean, Ami Sochai? What does it all mean? How do you identify? That's a, that's a good question. That's a heavy question. I don't think I have the answer for it. Like I, I know what it, what it means to me, but I never tried to put into words. And I, I don't know if it, even, it can, even if I want to put it into words. Because, you know, I have kind of my, my style on how I'm doing things. The tradition that I keep, you even see by my name. It's actually a pretty, you know, it's a pretty religious name in a way. A very Zionist name so you know i i have my style uh on day to day again when i'm when i have to make decisions i'm 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 sewing but my, my way so i i know it's something that it's hard for me uh to the point that i don't even want to put it into like this is what it means to me just you know, living my life and seeing and, and 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 you know and making decisions based on on something that I, some internal voice that i have or instinct so it's, a, it's, a, it's a feeling of the heart almost yeah wow so jewish pride how, how what is that jewish pride <laughs> I think I'm sure I have an investor in one song like being Jewish the best fraternity in the world. Um <laughs> and it's how you see this, you're talking to somebody, you see they're Jewish and there's like almost a secret handshake. It's like, wait, blah blah blah. Oi, you say you say a couple of things like, All right, there's like more openness, but you know, that that's it. I get that, totally. Wow, Amichai, you know, I want to thank you. You know, I learned from, from our conversation a lot, a lot of different things. Obviously the main important thing is just go ahead and just do it. But also when you facing a, a new, I guess, a new challenge and, you know, even like an industry, like for example, health, where there's multiple bureaucracy and, you know, you knew nothing about it, but you know what? You said, hey, let me go ahead and take the chance to jump into it. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I was never a founder before. Let me go ahead and take the chance and be, become a founder. Let me learn these new types of things. Not letting any type of task or challenge become too daunting or too big for us, but go ahead and approaching that. And such a, a reinforcing message that's so powerful to hear that. So I want to thank you for that. I learned also multiple other things from our conversation that the time flew by very quickly. And there's no doubt in my mind that, that thousands and thousands of people are going to benefit from this, from hearing your message. So thank you, thank you, and thank you. And thank you for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed and able to take something out to implement into your life today or your company. Now, I'm super excited. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be announcing two new projects that we've been working on for some time. So definitely, please stay tuned. And if there's any way it could be of help, please reach out to me on LinkedIn at Ephraim Yarmak. Thank you, and look out for next week's episode.